From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the Society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. I'm Patrick Spiro, librarian of the Society. Today, John Van Horn, the Director Emeritus of the Library Company of Philadelphia, and a scholar who has studied Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, has joined us to talk about the founding and early history of the American Philosophical Society. In many ways, the Society has two founders. Benjamin Franklin, who helped organize the initiative in 1743, 275 years ago, and Thomas Jefferson, who served as the Society's president for about 17 years in the early national period. And there are few people better than Dr. Van Horn to talk about both. As director of the Library Company of Philadelphia, John stewarded an institution founded by Franklin in 1731. And in recent years, he has turned his scholarly eyes to Jefferson, recently publishing a digital edition of Jefferson's attempt to document the early history of the United States and overlook part of Jefferson's life. John was elected to membership in the APS in 2005 and currently serves on the Library Committee of the Society. Welcome, John. Thank you, Patrick. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I, I thought we could start with, with Franklin. Um, so Franklin founded uh, the APS in 1743, but this wasn't the first institution Franklin founded in Philadelphia, and it certainly wouldn't be his last. Can you tell us a little bit more about Franklin, the founder, not the founder of the country, but the founder of institutions that serve society? Franklin was a, a prodigious founder of, of a great many institutions. And a, a lot of them, as did APS, in a way, uh, grew out of his junto. And this was an organization he founded in 1727 when he was, what, a mere, what, 21 years old, uh, of like-minded artisans and tradesmen uh, in Philadelphia. They were, they were up and coming. They wanted to better themselves and better their community. And Franklin got them together to address the issues of the day and inform themselves and come up with, with schemes to better uh, the common wheel, as he would have said. Um, as he founded the Junto, he devised a series of questions that all of the members were supposed to ask themselves uh, before they attended every one of their, their weekly meetings at which they you know, discussed the issues of the day and read papers and critiqued each other's work. But I think the most important question was, do you think of anything at present in which the Junto may be serviceable to mankind, to their country, to their friends, or to themselves? So the idea was to come up with ideas that would uh, would serve the public and enhance their community, and at the same time, you know, serve themselves. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of a question of the public spirit and the and the private the private uh, gain as well. And out of these conversations came a number of the institutions that we still know today. I think the first and most important of those was the Library Company, uh, 1731. Uh, the Junto, as they met, they needed access to books and knowledge to uh, solve points of dispute or, you know, refer to for ready reference. And the idea was initially that they would pool their books together into a common library. 
uh, and they did that, but uh, that experiment was not a great success. Uh, Franklin said there were a lot of problems due to uh, the want of good care of them. Now, you, you mentioned that the APS was also kind of an outgrowth of the Junto. Um, so what was the relationship between the Junto, the library company, and then the American Philosophical Society? Well, that's a very complicated history because APS's origins spread over almost a quarter of a century. It began really with correspondence between the botanist uh, John Bartram and Peter Collinson in London as early as 1738-39 about the need to establish a intercolonial society of uh, literati and people who were interested in science and, and those kind of pursuits. Uh, Collinson was a little skeptical about it. He thought Philadelphia was too new and young and didn't have a critical mass of people who could constitute such a society. Uh, so the idea kind of faded for a few years. Then in 1743, Franklin and Bartram issued their proposal for promoting useful knowledge in the colonies. And this was a broadside that was then circulated throughout the colonies, calling for the creation of something pretty much on the order of the Royal Society of London, where uh, people who were interested in science would uh, create an organization where they would meet regularly, they would share ideas, write papers, uh, critique each other's works, publish their writings in the transactions, which got off the ground later, um, and in that way, uh, promote useful knowledge by spreading information you know, throughout the colonies through these publications. Um, and again, the idea didn't take hold immediately uh, for various reasons, and this proposed society became some historians use the word dormant, some use moribund, <laughs> whatever. For, so for almost for 25 years, it, it lay dormant. And uh, in 1764, Franklin left the colony for England. Uh, but yet even in his absence, four years later in 1768, the idea came to the fore again. Um, a, a group called the Young Junto had been founded about 1750, and this was kind of a, a carryover of Franklin's original idea. And in 1766, the Young Junto morphed into an organization called the American Society for Promoting and Propagating Useful Knowledge held at Philadelphia. Uh, and two years later, that American Society absorbed what was called the Philadelphia Medical Society, obviously composed of doctors. And that group, uh, elected Franklin as its president, even though he was still in London. Um, and then two years later, all four of these rather amorphous organizations uh, merged to become what we know today as the American Philosophical Society held at Philadelphia for promoting useful knowledge. Um, and so that was the, the true beginning of, of the APS. And again, Franklin was still in London, yet he was elected the first president and was elected president every year thereafter until his death. So APS had kind of a long gestational period, you might say, until it truly became came into existence in 1768. Yeah, so that actually brings up a question I have more about Franklin, and that's that even though he's not president, everybody's looking to Franklin uh, to be the president, to be uh, their figurative, if not actual, leader. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Franklin's 
evolution in, in, in his own life because he arrived in Philadelphia as a, as a teenager uh, carrying just a loaf of bread. And, you know, within a matter of years, he was creating institutions like the Library Company, the American Philosophical Society. He's traveling then to London, becoming this international figure. So, so can you talk about Franklin's life in Philadelphia, um, how, he, how he rose from this uh, penniless, you know, teenager to, to the Dr. Franklin we know today? And a wealthy, a wealthy printer who could retire early. Uh, actually, that's sort of the precursor for, for some of this, is that Franklin did become a very successful printer. And he was clerk of the assembly, and he got all the official publication work of the, of the colony. He published a newspaper and received an enormous amount of income from uh, newspaper advertisements. He was the postmaster of, of um, the Philadelphia, and he received revenue by forwarding mail and uh, handling all the, all the postal efforts. So by 1748, uh, in partnership with David Hall, uh, he was in a position to turn over the business to David Hall and kind of retire from active active uh, work. Uh, I also should say he invested in other schemes. He, he was he owned paper mills and uh, supplied his own paper for his publications. Uh, he published for himself and for other authors. So he he really had quite a remarkable uh, publishing career. And in fact, he. Uh, had an early scheme of, you might call it franchising, where he would use his own funds to set up printers in other colonies. And then they would become successful printers and he would reap a percentage of all of their, uh, all of their business. Uh, and so he really was quite the entrepreneur and, um, and, uh, and fixer. Uh, and so by 1748, when he was what, uh, you know, 42 years old, he effectively retired from business with having gained a competence, as they used to say in the 18th century, which meant he was independently wealthy. So he could then afford to step back from business and devote himself to public service and begin to conceive all of these institutions and get them going. Uh, so out of the junto and out of his, his fertile mind came, as you say, not just the library company and APS, but um, an insurance company to insure houses against loss by fire, uh, Pennsylvania Hospital, uh, a town watch, a street cleaning effort, um, all kinds of civic activities. And one thing he was very conscious of, which is kind of interesting, is that uh, people always credited him with these ideas and viewed him as the the godfather of, of all these civic institutions. And he was very self-conscious about not wanting to take on too much credit himself, wanting to make sure other people were involved and credited because he realized that, that none of these efforts could succeed on the back of a single person. They all required what I called in an article I wrote some time ago, collective benevolence, which was marshalling other people and other financial resources to get together to collectively and communally carry out these efforts. So he sometimes, in his autobiography, he talked about trying to step back sometimes after he had an idea and make it appear to be somebody else's idea so that other people would not be too resentful of him and more willing to, to step up. When you look at Franklin's life, um, what made him so civically minded? Um, I don't know that there's anybody else 
in colonial and even or even revolutionary America that was involved in so many different institutions, their creation and the support of them. So what really, what drove Franklin? That's a great question. In his autobiography, he talks about two particular influences on his thinking. And one of them was Daniel Defoe, the English uh, polemicist, pamphleteer, uh, who wrote a book called An Essay on Projects. And the other was uh, Cotton Mather, a New England divine, a Puritan, who wrote a book called Beneficius, An Essay on Doing Good. And Franklin's autobiography relates how both those were influential on him. Defoe used the word projector uh, and the, pro the projecting spirit. And at that time, that was really a kind of a term of opprobrium. It, it, it was, uh, if someone was a projector, it, it meant that they were a schemer, uh, a swindler, a stock jobber, uh, you know, a little, a little too clever trying to, trying to do something in not necessarily the most above board ways. Uh, and Defoe really turned that around. And when he talked about projectors and the projecting spirit, he was talking about people like Franklin who, could not only conceive an idea, but carry it through to implementation. And that really made an impression on Franklin. And he thought of himself as a projector and someone who was just, just not a man of ideas, but who could conceive of one of these schemes and then actually you know, make it happen. And Mather as well talked about how doing good was, uh, was doing something you know, divine. Doing good was serving God. You know, by serving mankind, you were not only serving yourself, but you were serving serving God and and the common good. So, in in a way, um, philanthropy was Franklin's religion. And th many times in his writings, he he would say the the way you could best serve God was by doing good to mankind. So he kind of took that upon himself as his personal religious credo. And so all of these things he did to improve mankind and his society and his community uh, were in his mind, you know, acts of godliness. In fact, the, the motto he came up with for the library company was a Latin phrase that translates as uh, to pour forth benefits for the common good is divine. So that, that's, that was his motivation. I, I remember uh, reading a letter that he wrote to one of Mather's, I think, grandchildren. Um, in the 1780s. Uh, so this is after Franklin was now, you know, in his 70s at least. And um, he's t talking about the things that influenced him. And he was recalling that book exactly. So clearly influenced him throughout his life, um, both in the 1720s and 30s. But, you know, he never forgot it even as he got, uh, got older. So Franklin is philanthropist. Franklin is businessman. Franklin is civic leader we've talked about. We haven't talked about Franklin as scientist, which maybe was a, an avocation that he came to later in life. But you could, could you talk a little bit more about Franklin as a, as a scientist? Uh, yes, I, I think, well, everybody knows that his greatest contributions were in the field of electricity. And this reputation as a scientist, of course, preceded his reputation in Europe as a, a diplomat and a, a, the noble savage and the representative of America. Uh, but this actually grew out of of work at the library company. Uh, before APS was reestablished in 1768 and became a, a scientific institution, the library company for 30 some years was sort of the only game in town. So when anybody had not just books to donate, but 
Indian artifacts and fossils and uh, natural history specimens in bottles of ether uh, or scientific apparatus of any kind, they would donate to the library company. So for instance, uh, the proprietor, uh, John Penn, donated in the 1730s uh, air pump, which were glass globes in which you could create vacuums and do scientific experiments. Peter Collinson, the library company's book agent in London, and the one who corresponded with Bartram in the 30s about getting APS off the ground, he sent to the library company some uh, glass tubes also in which you could create vacuums and you could accumulate charges of static electricity, which could then be discharged to do certain experiments. And then Franklin had his own electrostatic machine, which the library company still owns thanks to a gift from Franklin's grandson. And this was a glass globe uh, that you could turn with a handle to make it spin and you'd push a leather pad against the globe to create a charge of static electricity inside, which then could, dis be, could be discharged to do an experiment. So for instance, there's the famous story of Franklin electrocuting a turkey. He also serviced the paralyzed arm of a man, I think his name was John Hewitt, uh, and that temporarily restored sensation to his arm. And so they were doing these kind of experiments. And Franklin uh, also used Leyden jars, which could accumulate charges in them as, as a kind of a primitive battery. So Franklin wrote up his, his experiments. And in these letters that he wrote to Peter Collinson, he introduced phrases and words like charge, battery, positive, negative. Um, and when he wrote these letters to Hollinson, Collinson then took them to the Royal Society and had them published in, in their philosophical transactions as communications from Mr. B. Franklin of Philadelphia. And when these articles were published in London, they became a real sensation because no one had made quite these connections before. Uh, and then he also did experiments with lightning, and he was the first with the kite experiment and other means to demonstrate that lightning was indeed the same as electricity. And uh, when he wrote that up, it led to the invention of the uh, lightning rod, which drew electricity from the sky and safely conducted it to the ground and was enormous boon to uh, cities which avoided fires caused by lightning. And um, so all of these writings of his and experiments, which were published in, in London, uh, finally in book form when they were all gathered together as the experiments and observations on electricity. That is what really established Franklin's reputation as a scientist. So when he arrived in, in Europe as an agent of the colonies and then began his career as a diplomat, and that was, what, 12 years after the publication of his experiments, after he'd been elected a fellow of the Royal Society, after he'd been awarded a honorary degree from St. Andrews University in Scotland, which allowed him to call himself from then on Dr. Franklin, um, you know, that really kind of paved the way for, for his later career as a diplomat. Yeah. And so what are some of the other uh, innovations that he's responsible for? Um, there's a stove. The, the Franklin stove was one of them. Um, 
well, I guess I guess you could say it was a stove. It was more like a fireplace, but it was a freestanding fireplace. Rather rather than being recessed in a wall with a chimney, it was a freestanding unit that you'd put in your room, and it used a series of ductwork to draw in air that would pass below and behind the fire chamber and heat up the metal through which it passed, these flues. And through that means, warm air would be distributed throughout the room through convection from the hot metal and also through the air itself. But that would not be the smoke from the fire, which would be uh, expelled through a, a chimney. So it was a huge uh, improvement in heating homes. Uh, it burned less wood and it had greater efficiency. And that gained him a lot of notoriety as well. And that, of course, was published as a pamphlet and widely distributed. And the ocean? Well, Franklin was a, a great observer of nature. Obviously, he would see something and wonder, gee, how does that work? You know, whether it was lightning or, or, uh, or transatlantic passages. And of course, he had made a number of transatlantic voyages. Uh, and when he was in England in about, I think, 1768, um, his cousin, uh, Timothy Folger, who was a whaler and a merchant, arrived in London and Franklin asked him, you know, why is it that mail packets traveling from England to America uh, always seem to take longer than merchant vessels? And Folger, who knew these currents from his whaling experiences, explained about the Gulf Stream, which was warm water that circulated from the Gulf of Mexico and around Florida and then up the Atlantic coast and then from about Newfoundland began its eastward trek across the Atlantic. And the Spaniards knew about the Gulf Stream from the 1500s, but nobody had really tried to utilize it or map it. Uh, so it was Folger who explained to Franklin that, well, the mail packets are fighting the current. They're, they're sailing into it and against it, whereas the, the merchant ships uh, which have had a lot more experience in dealing with this, they, they cross it at certain points and they, they sail along its perimeter, which had a, because it was a, a stream in the middle of the Atlantic, it had a northern edge and a southern edge. And he explained that they really knew how to, how to navigate it. So on, on one of his trips back home, um, Franklin then tried to measure the Gulf Stream, take its temperature and note its boundaries. And then when he got back to uh, America in 1786, he published a chart of the Gulf Stream. APS published it as a fold-out map in, in the transactions. And so Franklin, even though he didn't invent the Gulf Stream, uh, he and Folger together kind of figured it out and were the first to actually map it and explain it and uh, instruct sailors and, and merchants about how to avoid it and, or take advantage of it to cut down their travel time and save on fuel and, and make the trip uh, a lot more quickly. It's remarkable that that was something of an open secret that yes. some knew of, some didn't uh, for, for so long. Um, so they had, uh, So what do you think Franklin would now, I was thinking back about how, how you talked about Franklin um, and his desire to not always be out front, if, so mm -hmm. to speak, um, because that could in some ways detract from an effort, that it was a, a collective effort, as you mentioned, um, more effective. So what would Franklin think today? Because we seem to celebrate him as a founder. What would he think about his, his legacy? I mean, he wrote an autobiography when he was thinking about his legacy. What, what, what did Franklin imagine his legacy would be? 
That's an interesting question. Well, it is paradoxical because even though he did talk in his autobiography about trying to step back on occasion, he, he was very much interested in self-aggrandizement, at least as far as his reputation went. Uh, and he was you know, somewhat jealous of his reputation. And I think writing the autobiography was a perfect example of that. It's written in such a way as to enhance his reputation. Somewhat imaginary in, in many cases. There are historians who think that a lot of the, the anecdotes are probably totally fabricated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, you know, it's exaggerated in a way to, uh, you know, to make him appear to be uh, larger than life in a lot of ways. So it, in a way, his modesty was false modesty. Uh, he had an affect of being modest and self-effacing, yet the purpose of that affect was to, uh, was to enhance his reputation. So the two uh, institutions that he founded, the Library Company and the American Philosophical Society, both share so many commonalities, uh, having the, the junto as their kind of inspirational idea um, that they were to advance knowledge and learning. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what this relationship between the library company and the APAS uh, was like in the 18th century in Franklin's own time and, and how it's evolved um, now into the 21st century. Early on, I would say they were kind of friendly competitors. Uh, as I mentioned before, APS really got off the ground in 68. Uh, the library company was actually America's first museum in the sense that it it accepted as gifts and housed, you know, Roman coins and antiquities and fossils and Indian artifacts and uh, all manner of things that, that you would normally find in a museum. But this was, as I say, before APS, before the Academy of Natural Sciences, before the Franklin Institute. So there really was no other obvious place for anybody to make a, make a deposit. Um, but even after the founding of APS, the library company was still accepting such things, uh, which is kind of curious. So you find in the 1770s and 80s, uh, well after APS was off the ground and was in the business of collecting such materials, the library company was still accessioning for its collections gifts of uh, natural history specimens or Indian artifacts or Roman coins, that sort of thing. And then on the library end of it, uh, even though the library company was the principal repository of books in the city, uh, APS appointed its first librarian, David Rittenhouse, in 1774 and was beginning to make an effort to collect books and uh, manuscripts and, and things like that um, by exchange with some of the foreign scientific societies and, and other things as well. But around that time, both APS and the library company, neither of which had a permanent home at that point and had been meeting at the carpenter's company or the state house or in the home of a librarian or a curator, uh, both attempted to acquire a site on Independence Square from the state uh, on which to build a separate building. Uh, and there was a dispute as to who was going to get the lot on Fifth Street and who was going to get the lot on Sixth Street because uh, at the time, with the, with the city having expanded from the Delaware westward, uh, Fifth Street was still a good location, but Sixth Street was sort of the howling wilderness, comparatively speaking, because the city hadn't quite moved that far west. So there was a big dispute and a, uh, a competition to get the state to 
allot these these lots. And in fact, um, the library company was assigned 6th Street and kind of backed out of the deal. And APS got 5th Street and put up Philosophical Hall. Uh, and so a few years later, when the library company needed to put up its own building, it actually got a building further east. It was on 5th Street, but um, it was not really on Independence Square. But So th their buildings went up within uh, a couple of years of each other directly across the street. So, you know, there, there was some talk about perhaps combining, but those talks went nowhere and, and they set up shop independently. And then ever since then, there's been a kind of a friendly competition, but eras when their, their lines crossed or their fates almost, almost came together. Um, there was talk of merger uh, in, in the 1790s and then again in the 1950s uh, and none of those actually ever worked out so the, the institutions remained separate but operating for in a way fairly similar purposes. Well in, in the library company it was originally founded as um, kind of a lending library open to the Philadelphians who needed access to this material and couldn't afford it but then there was the free library the public library system in Philadelphia which must have changed the library company's orientation and um, today, the library company might look a little different from the way it did in, in Franklin's uh, era. Can you talk a little bit about what the Library Company of Philadelphia does today? Well, today, actually, our library is probably more like the APS library than, than it's ever been because it's, it's non-circulating. It has historical collections of rare books and manuscripts that deal with many of the same subjects. Uh, the library company's collections have because they've been you know growing since 1731 are are pretty broad ranging but basically uh, the collection is described as American history and its European background in the 17th 18th and 19th centuries so we really stop around 1900 or a little after uh, whereas APS today continues to acquire modern material especially manuscript material papers of of its members uh, in certain fields of the history of science and genetics and and uh, and that that sort of thing I want to take us back uh, to that moment um, in the 1780s where the library company and the American Philosophical Society are looking for the first time to establish their own freestanding buildings which I think really reflects that moment in our country's history in which um, this new nation needs to have institutions like the library company and like the American Philosophical Society to support um, it, its independence. And uh, one of the figures that emerges in the APS history and in our own nation's history is, is Thomas Jefferson as a leading and important figure. So I was hoping you might be able to now talk a little bit about Jefferson and the APS and his role in, in, in the society. Well, Jefferson had a major role in the society for a great many years. He was elected in 1780. Uh, and he was active in the early years on, on various committees and all. But he really became active uh, in 1791 when he became a vice president. And that was a time when he was in Philadelphia because just the previous year in 1790, uh, he had become secretary of state and served in Washington's cabinet with Hamilton. And so they were in Philadelphia and he was able to take a very active role in the society in uh, its governance and determining its, its future, really. Uh, and in 17, 
97 than when he was uh, still in Philadelphia, but this time as vice president. Uh, he was first elected president of APS. Actually, at the very first meeting he attended as president, uh, presided over in uh, May of 1797, uh, a committee was established. It was called the, the Committee to Collect Information Respecting the Past and Present State of This Country. And it was the work of that committee that kind of established what APS would start to collect. So Jefferson participated on that committee. And it was during that period that uh, they really decided that APS should become a repository of America's natural history and also of its native past. And so those were two of Jefferson's great interests. Uh, and in fact, they carry over until today, uh, defining two of, of APS's current uh, you know, principal interests. Uh, and so he was, he was influential in uh, writing to correspondents and encouraging people to submit things uh, for the collection. And he wrote to members all over the country, uh, kind of pleading the cause and, and requesting that materials be sent in, which, which they were. Uh, and Jefferson served as president actually until uh, 1815. But for most of that time, he was not in Philadelphia. So it was a little difficult for him to take uh, much of an active role. Uh, he was actually only here for, uh, you know, very few of those years. After 1800, when the capital moved to Washington, then he was no longer in Philadelphia. And then after 1809, when he retired, he was for the most part in at Monticello. So for those last, uh, quarter century of his life. He was with active with APS, but not in Philadelphia. Uh, actually, going back to Franklin, the same thing could be said of him. Uh, I mentioned that he was elected president every year from 1769 to, to his death in 1790. But for the most part, he was not in Philadelphia. He was either in London or Paris. And it was only those last four or five years from 85 to 90 when he returned to Philadelphia, that he again could be an, a presiding president. Mm -hmm. uh, and even in those years, though, as his health began to fade, uh, he didn't attend all the meetings. And toward the end, the ones he did attend actually took place at his home, where the members, uh, as a matter of, of courtesy, you know, came to his home to meet to save him the effort of, of getting out to the other meetings. And actually, did, uh, did Jefferson and Franklin have a relationship? That's, that's a good question. I've, I've thought something about that, and it's really, it was not all that great because uh, obviously they were together in, at the Continental Congress in the 70s at the time of the Declaration. But then they, they pretty much separated when uh, Franklin was in Europe for all those years. And then Jefferson went to Europe to succeed Franklin as Minister to France and to kind of take over the diplomacy post-revolution. So in a way, uh, they had back-to-back -back careers, but the times when their paths actually crossed and they had a personal connection and, uh, you know, it was pretty kind of negligible in a way. So uh, even though they had remarkable influence on, on the society over the years, 
and back-to-back -back presidencies, except for a period when David Rittenhouse was the second president, uh, their paths really didn't cross. The other thing to consider is the difference in age. Uh, they were, let's see, 1706 and 1743. What's that, 37 years difference? Uh, Jefferson wrote a, uh, an interesting piece in which he was doing some kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it um, prosopographical work about and population studies. And of course, Franklin was interested in population studies as well. But Jefferson defined a generation after studying typical lifespans and all. Uh, he, he defined an American generation as 19 years. So if you think that Franklin and Jefferson were born 37 years apart, that's virtually two generations in Jefferson's thinking. So they weren't even really father and son. <laughs> they, they were more like grandfather and grandson. Can you talk a little bit more about Jefferson's scholarly interests? Because that's what the APS was really about in this period was to you know, elect to membership those that are working in the sciences, those who are, who are exploring the natural world. So what were Jefferson's um, scholarly interests? Um, well, princ principally two, which I mentioned, um, which were identified by this committee to collect information regarding the past and present state of the country. Uh, America's natural history and its native history. Natural history for Jefferson was uh, anything concerning, you know, the natural world. I guess what we would today consider, you know, botany and zoology. So he was interested in the uh, the production of the country, its its uh, agricultural production and its fauna and flora. And um, as far as uh, natural production was concerned, uh, he was interested in in you know plants and their and their use to man as agricultural products. Uh, when he sent Lewis and Clark on their expedition, he wanted them to collect examples of plants and trees and shrubs and agricultural productions that were maybe known to the natives but not known to people on the East Coast and to send these back so that they could be studied and, and reproduced and cultivated. Um, natural history, he wanted them to keep a lookout for any uh, species of animal or bird that was unknown in the East and to collect their collect the specimens or collect bones or fossils if, if he couldn't find the specimens. Uh, he was particularly interested in extinction and the concept of extinction and whether it was even possible for anything to become extinct. This was the era of the great chain of being where where people believed in a, a sequence of, of immutable species from the least to the greatest, of course, ending with humans at the apex and other species you know, following down, down below. But Jefferson knew about uh, something called the megalonics, which were fossils that were found, uh, I think, in the Ohio Valley or West Virginia, perhaps which was what he thought was a, a very large carnivore, maybe a, a saber-toothed tiger or something like that, and fascinated by the fact that the fossils had been found, but the, the animal had never been seen. Uh, and it turns out, of course, that the megalonics was, was a herbivorous giant sloth, yes. <laughs> which was extinct. 
But nonetheless, Jefferson wrote it up and he, he had engravings made of the bones and he speculated about the nature of this beast and published, in the, published that piece in the APS transactions. And why was he so interested in trying to prove that it was at first a tiger or some sort of great large animal? Well, that, that derived from his dispute with, with the Comte de Buffon and his, uh, the, the, the book he wrote in the 80s called Notes on the State of Virginia. Uh, the Count de Buffon was a Frenchman who posited that the Western Hemisphere was degenerate, that its Native American people were, were weak and small, that its weather was not salubrious and not conducive to uh, growing uh, wonderful species of people and plants and animals. It was wetter and colder than Europe. He thought uh, American animals were smaller and less robust than European. And so this really, uh, this really got to Jefferson, stuck in his craw. And he set about to, to disprove Buffon. And one of the ways he wanted to do that was to uh, solicit information from people all over the country to, again, have them send him specimens of plants and animals that would disprove this thesis. Notes on the state of Virginia, again, was an attempt to uh, elevate the view of Native Americans. He talked about how strong and powerful and uh, valiant and brave they were in combat, how articulate. He transcribed into the notes on the state of Virginia a speech that had been, been recorded of an Indian called Chief Logan, uh, which spoke to his ability to speak philosophically and on a very high level. So he was trying to um, establish that American species were indeed more robust and larger uh, than European and that the American environment was going to far outstrip Europe in its accomplishments because of these natural uh, attributes uh, that it had. You mentioned Native American uh, materials and, and cultures as another key uh, area of interest for him, but also something that he created for the APS as a collecting area. Can you talk a little bit more about his interest in, in Native American history? Yeah. Um, well, he was fascinated by, by Native Americans. And he was particularly interested in their languages and the, the, the vast number of languages throughout America. And he set out to document this by uh, creating Indian vocabularies. Uh, so he would try to get from, you know, from various sources and from, from some Indians themselves uh, how, all the different Indian words for a certain English word. And he would compile these into, uh, I mean, Jefferson was a sort of inveterate list maker and list keeper, you know, whether it was weather statistics or, or Indian words or whatever. There, he always wanted to write things down and regularize things and reduce them to you know, some easy way of comprehension. And so his Indian vocabularies were just that. And he acquired them over many years from many tribes. Uh, and a, a sad story is that a lot of these were lost uh, when he shipped, I think it was after he retired as president, he was shipping a lot of his personal papers and furniture and effects 
uh, from Washington by boat down to uh, to Monticello, and I think some some boats overturned on a river, and unfortunately he lost a great many of his papers, including I think some of the Indian uh, vocabularies. But he did uh, try to recreate some of those, and late in life, I think in in response to an effort in, after 1815 of of the society to create a historical and literary committee that would promote the acquisition of, of new materials for the library. Uh, he gave some Indian materials, as well as a lot of other things that he had accumulated, including um, William Byrd's account of the dividing line, which was a survey of the, the border between Virginia and North Carolina. And at that time, he also gave Lewis and Clark's journals uh, which, of course, had a great number of, of Native American observations in them. He also dabbled in architecture, didn't he? He did. Uh, dabbled is, is an interesting word because uh, there are some architectural historians and, and Jefferson boosters who, who credit him with almost a professional level of architecture and having introduced the, the field into America. And, of course, he was a very accomplished architect. And... Monticello and Poplar Forest, and the University of Virginia, of course, are probably three of his most uh, well-known efforts in that regard. Um, but in fact, uh, Benjamin Latrobe was the first professional architect in America, and he and Jefferson were very close friends and very frequent correspondents and kind of formed a mutual admiration society. Um, but. Latrobe, being the professional architect, uh, did have his issues with, with Jefferson. And in 1803, Jefferson appointed uh, Latrobe as surveyor of the public buildings of the United States, which was uh, sort of tantamount to being architect of the Capitol and also of the president's house and all of the other public buildings that were part of, of creating Washington, D.C. Uh, and so during that effort, they collaborated closely on the design of the Capitol. Of course, they had to start with William Thornton's design that had been approved by Washington early on and had begun to be built. Uh, but then over the course of construction, lots of, uh, lots of problems were discovered. And in order to surmount them, Jefferson and Latrobe had to communicate and collaborate about it, how to revise those plans and build the capital in a, in a way that was more permanent and more appropriate. So they butted heads on occasions about, about things like skylights uh, and whether that was the best way to create a, a, you know, light for the Senate and House chambers and that sort of thing. But they did collaborate closely. And Jefferson did make enormous uh, contributions to architecture by uh, his classicism and his interest in taking Greek and Roman prototypes and transforming them into buildings that were appropriate for the American landscape and, and American needs. And you, you mentioned uh, UVA, which, of course, is uh, an institution that Jefferson helped found. Um, and I was, didn't know if you could talk a little bit about why he founded UVA and, and how its mission um, was influenced perhaps by the, his experience at the APS, or at least the mission of the American Philosophical Society? Uh, I think it has to do with, with promoting useful knowledge. I, I think some of that wording 
shows up in the applications for a charter from the state and in some of the original founding documents. Um, but at that point, most of the educations of uh, institutions of higher education were in the North. Uh, you had, you know, Harvard and Yale and William and Mary. And then, you know, by 1819, uh, you had um, other Northern institutions, you know, King's College, Columbia, Brown, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and in the South, you had the College of William and Mary, which is, of course, where Jefferson went to school. So I think it grew out of uh, out of his work at APS to to promote useful knowledge, and by that you know he meant fields that that were not necessarily the dead languages, but uh, were practical fields of science and mathematics and and history and rhetoric and Jefferson's. Uh, um mind was extremely expansive, shall we say. We've talked about his interest in agricultural improvements and innovations in exploring the natural world, the flora and the fauna, in architecture, in linguistics, in fossils and paleontology, um, creating institutions of higher education, but we haven't talked about history. And one of the, uh, the title of that group you mentioned was uh, for collecting and documenting the country's history. Can you talk a little bit about Jefferson's own interest in history and his place in it and documenting it? As I said, Jefferson was an inveterate uh, list maker and, and list creator, uh, list keeper, but he was also a document collector as well. He was very conscious of the historical record. And uh, I, I think the fact that he sold his collection of books to the Library of Congress is telling in that regard, in that he knew that the the federal government needed uh, a, rep a, a repository like that to contain the history of the country and its its European background as a resource in perpetuity, really. And likewise, he was interested in collecting documents. Uh, he collected and organized his own documents with extreme meticulousness. He kept virtually every scrap of paper he ever received or wrote. And he kept logs of every letter that he received and every letter he wrote. And he wanted to ensure that there was an, an archive that would always be available to, to tell that story. Uh, and there's an interesting story that represents kind of a subset of, of his archive. Uh, in 1790, when he became Secretary of State, he began his conflicts with Alexander Hamilton uh, in Washington's cabinet, and that was really the beginnings of the first party system. They were both generating lots of lots of documents to, uh, you know, tell their their story. And about the time Jefferson became president, uh, John Marshall began publishing his Life of Washington, which was a very high Federalist take on the early years of the country, and it was based on all of Washington's papers that were made available to Marshall in order to write that history. And of course, it portrayed Jefferson and the Republicans in a very negative light compared to Hamilton and the Federalists. And Jefferson was determined to create a, 
a documentary record that could be used to write a history to counter Marshall's that would eventually be used by somebody, somebody like Joel Barlow, uh, one of his friends who was an author and a fervent Jeffersonian, to at some point write that history. So while he was president in 1801 or two, while he obviously had a great many important things to be thinking about, he took time out from that schedule to go through all of his papers from his term as Secretary of State from 90 to 93 and extract from that archive 800 documents that presented basically the Republican Jeffersonian account of that era. And he put these books together in three volumes, bound them as in scrapbooks. And he, he referred to them as his three volumes bound in marbled paper. And they were uh, acquired by the Library of Congress in 1904, along with all of other, Jefferson's other papers. And the archivists there in uh, an act that has been described as uh, an act of archival vandalism, disbound his three volumes and interspersed all those 800 documents among all the tens of thousands of other Jefferson documents, you know, chronologically. So they've been published over the years in the Jefferson Papers project, uh, where they fall chronologically. But his carefully constructed three-volume documentary history was pretty much gone, lost to history, um, until the editors of the Jefferson Papers found a six-page list in Jefferson's hand that is really uh, the table of contents of those three volumes. And so they had figured out what was in those books. Uh, but with the advent of digitization and the availability of all these documents now online, freely accessible, uh, I conceived of a project a few years ago to do a, a virtual reconstruction of that history of Jefferson's. So I created a website, which is now available on the Princeton server. It's called jefferson3volumes.princeton.edu, uh, where you can go and actually read in the same sequence that Jefferson had bound these documents together in his three volumes. You can kind of read through the contents of all those three volumes by looking at each of these documents in sequence. Now, did you learn anything reading through those yourself about either Jefferson or about that period? Well, yes. I mean, obviously I learned that, that he had this uh, this overriding sense and almost obsession with documenting that period of history and kind of, you know, creating the rare, the raw material out of which someone could eventually uh, write this history. Um, and I found out about the depth of his feelings about those years. Uh, in 1818, he found these three volumes and he wrote a document that he called it explanations of the three volumes for the benefit of people who came after him who would want to use them. He explained why he put them together and what hope, what use he hoped someone would make of them. And he talked about how in 1818, he sat down and read through all of them again and gave them a calm revisal and removed a few of the more uh, um, explosive uh, incendiary <laughs> items from them. But yet he left a great deal of, of uh, incendiary items, including what we have, has been known today as the Annas. And these are about 75 memorandums that he wrote on the spot 
when he might have just come out of a cabinet meeting or a conversation with Washington or a, or a meeting at a tavern in which he heard some gossip about something. And he would come to come out and he would immediately write down a, a hastily scribbled memorandum. Uh, and those have always been by his editors, starting with his grandson, always been gathered separately and published as the Annas of Thomas Jefferson. You might think of it as Jeffersoniana. It was a word that sort of means just accumulation of you know, gossip and miscellaneous things. Um, so when people read the Annas separately, uh, they had a certain you know, sense of Jefferson's view of, of the times. Uh, but he actually, he bound those chronologically where they fit within these other 700 and some documents in the three volumes. And so when you read them in context, uh, you get a, a kind of a different sense. But when he said he gave his books a calm revisal and, and made some changes, and then you read, read the Annas and read some of the other documents where he's so uh, critical of Hamilton and uses some unbelievable language that we would today find kind of shocking. Uh, you realize that when he said, oh, well, the passions of those years have passed away because it was 25 years ago, you realize they really hadn't mm -hmm. and that, that he really did bear a grudge and that he, he really felt as strongly about Hamilton and their philosophical differences and the threat to the country the threat of the country becoming a monarchy in those years, uh, that for him it was as if it had happened the day before. It's a remarkable story. Um, and so anybody can now view these documents for the first time in their original order um, on Princeton's website. And we'll provide a link uh, on our website uh, uh, for those that are interested in seeing it. That brings me back to the, the place of the APS in Jefferson's life um, with all these various interests. Um, where did the APS fit within his own worldview? Well, I think the fact that he was able to move the society to adopt his own intellectual predilections and interests uh, was probably a very gratifying thing for him, that APS was responsive to his ideas and suggestions. And that was perhaps because um, it was a very intellectually and politically compatible organization. Uh, I know you've done a study of the early membership of the society, and you've established pretty definitively that uh, a great many of the early members were Jeffersonian in political persuasion, and a, a, a smaller minority were, were Federalist in their orientation. Uh, so I think that meant that when Jefferson attended meetings and when he was able to uh, have like-minded people elected to membership, uh, you know, he found himself in a very comfortable situation. So he tried to attend meetings as often as he could whenever, whenever he was in Philadelphia. So in that sense, the society was, was a very, uh, you know, comfortable and companionable place. Um, also, and this, this applies to both Franklin and Jefferson, I think, uh, they were both incredibly cosmopolitan and international in their outlooks. They had wide circles of correspondence abroad. Um, I'm not sure who had the bigger circle of correspondence abroad, but in both cases, they were, they were pretty huge. And when Franklin founded the APS, he wanted it to be initially intercolonial and 
eventually international. And by the time Jefferson became involved, it was already intercolonial and international, and he made it more so. What would a meeting of the APS, American Philosophical Society, in the Jefferson's age, what would that have been like? I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the old minutes, they always begin by, by listing who was attending. And it's, it's an interesting exercise because you can actually go and see at how many meetings, you know, the same two people that you're interested in might have actually been present. Uh, and so that's been done by people exploring relationships between person A and person B. Um, but you also get a sense that not that many people attended. In the, maybe a well-attended meeting would have a dozen members, maybe 18, 20. But you know, rarely do you see meetings where you know, half the membership is in attendance, un unless maybe some, something important was going to be voted on. So I think of them as, uh, as rather intimate and perhaps lubricated by a little port or sherry. Uh, I'm not sure. Early library company meetings were lubricated by uh, sherry and oysters. <laughs> <laughs> but at the APS meetings, when you think that that all of these demigods, really, the, 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 the most eminent scientists of their day, uh, who if you gathered them in a room today would be an astounding assemblage, uh, that they were all there to share their knowledge and to present papers to be critiqued by their peers and to read communications from someone abroad that, that in no other context would they ever have had access to. Um, it must have just been so stimulating. Uh, sometimes controversial, I suppose. Uh, you know, there were certain subjects that uh, were, there were factions on one side or another of an issue, maybe something like inoculation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for the most part, they were all pretty like-minded and pretty friendly. There were some personal, interpersonal rivalries. So in medicine, for instance, maybe Benjamin Rush and Casper Whisper would have attended, Wistar, uh, would have attended the same meeting. And they were apparently on the outs for a great many years. Um, but I think, on the whole, they were probably pretty remarkable uh, meetings. So when you think about that spirit of the 18th century, uh, how today do you see that still alive in what the APS does? Well, when you think about it, the mission of the APS has not really materially changed. Uh, the principal undertakings of the society today are the meetings, which existed then. They were monthly then. Now they're semi-annually, but nonetheless, it's the same idea. Uh, members coming and presenting their ideas to be critiqued by their, by their peers in, in different fields, which is another interesting thing about APS. They're not all, it's not a medical society or an anthropological society. It's, you've got the, the most eminent people in across disciplines. Publications is still a great interest of the society, which began with the transactions and then expanded with the proceedings and the memoirs, and they're all still still published today. You've got membership where uh, you're still electing the most eminent people in 
in various disciplines uh, across the board. Um, you've got the library, which was not an initial function of APS, having begun in 1774, but having grown ever since then. And now the library is, is one of the major functions of the society with growing collections in fields that were unknown in the time of the founding. Now you're looking at things like you know, genetics and uh, nuclear physics or computational sciences. You know, these were all totally unknown. Yet, uh, if Franklin or some of the other early scientific members came back today, they would get it <laughs> immediately. And of course, they would highly approve of, of, you know, of everything you're doing in that regard. Um, and also, I think um, communication with foreign societies, which I've mentioned before is something that both Franklin and Jefferson uh, fostered uh, to a large degree. And now a certain number of uh, spaces for the membership are reserved for foreign members and their participants in the society and they attend the meetings. And that just serves to maintain the original kind of international scope of the society. Yeah. Uh, oh, and research grants. Um, today, the society gives away, what, $2 million a year? Not or, quite there yet, not over a million. Yeah. Over, <laughs> over, over a million dollars a year of research grants uh, in all fields to support younger scholars and, and more advanced scholars, and then sometimes publishes those works in, in its own publications. Uh, but in the early years as well, um, the APS was involved in research. Uh, they made a loan to Charles Wilson Peale when he was going out to uh, exhume the uh, skeleton of the mastodon and needed needed some some funds to do that. I always thought it was interesting in uh, Franklin's original proposal that you were talking about. He actually said that members should pay dues, but these dues would go to support experiments in the field. I don't know that they ever raised any dues in this early period. As you mentioned, it was kind of a, almost from the beginning, a, a moribund institution. It was an idea more than an actual meeting. But even from the beginning, Franklin was thinking about how can we raise funds to support research, um, which I always thought was a progressive idea. I, I, I don't know if the Royal Society did anything like that. Um, it struck me as a, you know, a, uh, some, something that's Franklin-esque in the same way that that subscription to Pennsylvania Hospital was. Well, the Royal Society offered various premiums and prizes. Mm -hmm. And I suppose you could say those were kind of after the fact yeah. subsidization of research. Right. But then, then of course, uh, one of the more important early APS efforts was the Lewis and Clark mm. expedition. And that um, was funded by the federal government at Jefferson's behest, of course. Uh, and I'm sure his connection to APS was, was behind his thinking that, gee, we should get the federal government to do this. But APS was intimately involved because uh, a year or two before the expedition set out, uh, Jefferson sent Captain Lewis to Philadelphia to receive training that he would need to successfully carry out the exhibition. So he spent uh, a couple of months in Lancaster with Andrew Ellicott learning about surveying and astronomy. Uh, in Philadelphia, he learned about medicine with, with Rush and Caspar Wistar. He learned about celestial navigation and, and astronomy from David Rittenhouse. Uh, he learned about botany from Benjamin Smith Barton. Uh, there may have been others, but basically it was the, the APS inner circle 
that Jefferson turned to to supply the necessary training that, that Lewis would need to carry out his expedition. If he had gone out without the training and equipment that he received in Philadelphia, the expedition would have been much different and its accomplishments would have been much less. And his journals and artifacts and materials that he sent back uh, maybe would not have existed and would certainly not have ended up at APS. Uh, you were elected to membership in 2005, but your relationship uh, with the APS goes back far longer than that. Can you talk a little bit about your own work uh, with the APS, both uh, on site here, but then later as director of the library company? Well, well, my connection with APS has been easily as formative to my career as, as it's ever been to, to anyone else's, uh, especially Franklin's and Jefferson's. Um, I mentioned Benjamin Latrobe earlier as an APS member. Um, I was working on a project to edit and publish his papers in the 70s, 1970s and 1980s. Uh, he was America's first professional architect, but also trained as an artist and uh, a great engineer and scientist and had many um, interests that that coincided and overlapped with Jefferson's, which is why they became such close friends, I think. Um, but the project originally was housed at the Maryland Historical Society, but in 1980, uh, we moved to Philadelphia because the editor-in-chief of the project, uh, former APS librarian uh, Edward Carter, uh, in 1980 was appointed librarian and came to Philadelphia to take up that post uh, but wanted to keep his editorship of the Latrobe papers. So I was one of a couple of staff members who moved up at the time. So we took up quarters here on the second floor of the library hall in 1980. And I worked on the project for four years here and also worked with, with Ted on some APS business. I was sort of his assistant and got involved in different APS activities. And then in 1985, I moved a few blocks up the street to become the director of the library company in Philadelphia. So after that, I uh, maintained my connection with, with Ted and, and APS and uh, was elected in uh, 2005 and then immediately became active on the Committee on Library. Uh, and since then, I've been a regular attendee at meetings and active on the committee and helping with uh, on search committees for positions and helping ad hoc on other uh, APS committees, uh, worked, uh, I've reviewed reviews for publications. And What about uh, the years 1987 and 2006? Very important years yeah. because uh, 87 was the uh, bicentennial of the United States Constitution and library company and APS were involved in the Miracle at Philadelphia exhibition uh, which took place here at the Second Bank right next door. And then in 2006 uh, was uh, the library company's 275th anniversary and coincidentally the uh, tercentenary of Benjamin Franklin's birth, uh, which involved a major international traveling exhibition and activities both at APS and the library company, a lot of public programs and conferences. And one of the activities uh, that we planned was to do a major catalog of the library of Benjamin Franklin, which had never been done before. And um, 
this was a library company project begun by Edwin Wolf, my predecessor as director of the library company. Uh, and then Edwin died and I commissioned uh, Kevin Hayes uh, to carry on with that project. And Kevin finished the catalog. It's a magnificent work. It identifies every book that Franklin is known to have owned with lots of commentary drawn from his writings about the authors and the books and that sort of thing. And in looking for a co-publisher of that book so we could bring it out in 2006, I turned to APS, which readily agreed to co-publish the book with us. And when it came out, it was a volume in APS's memoir series and is really a, a magnificent permanent testimony and product of that collaborative effort of honoring Benjamin Franklin's 300th anniversary. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I hope these type of collaborations between these two Franklin-founded institutions continue. No doubt they will in the years to come. It's been it's been a great 300 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we now have, uh, in 2026, the 250th of, the, of 1776. So it'll be interesting to see what that brings. But John, I wanted to thank you. Uh, Franklin and Jefferson were both uh, parts of the Enlightenment, and uh, this uh, conversation has been particularly enlightening. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you, Patrick, for having me. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Bretta Holland and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. 